Well, uh, it's great to see you all here this morning. If I haven't met you, my name's Matt, and actually if I haven't met you, if you're uh, new here or if you've been here for some time and uh, we haven't had a chance to catch up yet, I would love to meet you. I generally try and hang up, hang around uh, up near the um, stained glass windows towards the end of the service, so I'd love it if you could come up and introduce yourself to me, and um, I'm generally pretty friendly, and uh, depends what sort of mood I'm in, but feeling pretty good today, so uh, come up and say hi. I, would, I really would love uh, to meet you. Um, today, I'm going to talk about something very simple, actually, but I want to pull this apart and put it back together again because it's something that can easily we can easily form wrong ideas about. And particularly lately, I felt the need to really dig a deep foundation into some of the central aspects of the Christian faith and to revisit those things because I believe that we need to go deeper as we move forward. We need to go deeper into some of these real central fundamentals uh, of the faith. These are the things, these are the simple things that can easily become so cliched that they lose meaning. And today uh, I'm going to talk about the centrality of love in the Christian life. Now, as I said, this is simple, but it's so easy for us to lose a sense of the meaning of this. One of the things I love about the Christian life is actually its simplicity. We are complex creatures, but what God requires of us is actually wonderfully, wonderfully simple. He wants us to love him and to love him first and to love others too. And today I'm going to explore the not only the idea of love and just dig a little bit deeper into that, but I also want to show you the connection between those two elements. Why, in order to truly love other people, we need to love God first. This, there's this wonderful sense that God is saying to us with all of the things that demand that we, all of the demands that we feel in our lives, all the things we feel that we must do, and sometimes you can just feel exhausted by all of the expectations that you can carry into life. But God puts, as Jesus says, an easy yoke upon us, and He says, I actually just want you to love me and love others. Just love me and love my kids. That's pretty much it. That's the Christian life. I love the simplicity of that. This is how it's expressed in, uh, first of all, in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote a number, uh, a big part of the New Testament, he says here, and yet I will show you the most excellent ways, putting this before anything else. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. And he says down in verse 13, now these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest of all the commandments? In other words, he was being asked, what's the most important thing in life? Can you condense the whole of the Christian life down to one principle? And this is what Jesus said. 
says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Mark, uh, in his gospel in uh, Mark 12, 30, adds, and with all your strength. And then verse 38 of Matthew 22, Jesus says, this is the first and the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Do that first. And it's notice it's pervasive. It, 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 there's this sense that God desires your all. He wants your all. And the thing that you, what you love the most in life is what you worship. That is the definition of worship is your highest love. So he says, this is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, he says. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, there's something that you yourself and your neighbor have in common that warrants you being loved. And I'm going to define that in a moment. He says in verse 40, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law of the prophets hang on these two commandments. As I said, I'm going to explain why those two need to be in that order. That order is very, very important. One of the problems uh, in our culture, and I've talked about this uh, a bit before, is the way that our culture has flattened reality down, has blocked out a whole dimension that we might refer to as a, as a spiritual dimension or a transcendent dimension. And this has been recognized as a problem, actually, not just by Christian writers, in fact, not even just by religious writers, but people who recognize that there's a whole field of reality that our culture has just blocked out. We've created flatland to cite the, um, uh, the, the title of a, of a classic 19th century novel called Flatland, which was anticipating this very kind of, this, this very move. And one of the things that happens when we block out that dimension of reality and we only really acknowledge a dimension of physical stuff, then even the words that we use, even the key concepts and the most important ideas of life, they actually change their meaning. Fundamentally, they change their meaning. This is true with two of the most important and most misused now, as a result, the most misused words, love and happiness, just to give you an example, are two words that mean completely different things than, so for example, taking the word happiness, when most people use the word happiness in our culture, they mean something quite different to what actually most religious traditions, and in fact, what we, we've seen even in uh, a lot of philosophy down through history, there is actually fairly broad agreement on a general definition of happiness, going right back um, to, for example, uh, in Plato. Plato believed that happiness, to be happy was to have a rightly ordered soul for uh, Aristotle. Happiness was uh, a right functioning soul. And uh, you, if, even if you go to, um, into Buddhism, for example, the Buddhist tradition would argue that, uh, that happiness is essentially an, an inward state of things being rightly ordered. And it, you can't just reorder things in your world around you and expect that that's going to some, somehow magically reorder things within you. But in our culture, 
what we tend to see is that people try to reorder the furniture of their lives and they think something's going to change inwardly. And that's almost, that's absurd, really. No, there's something, there's an inner state that is really what happiness is. And it has everything to do with things being rightly ordered. That is generally agreed upon. In fact, um, there's a, a book that I've cited before. It's actually the, the author's an atheist. He's a very prominent social psychologist called Jonathan Haidt, and he wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. And he basically says that when it comes to happiness, all of the major religious traditions and even going back to early Greek philosophy basically agree on, you know, on the, some of the key elements of what uh, happiness actually is. And he talks about this whole uh, other dimension and the fact that that has been flattened. But it's got everything to do with order. And so this is, this is why it's important to talk about the ordering of the things that we love because our life is oriented not primarily by what we think but by what we love. Our lives are primarily determined. The way that we live, the experience of life that you will have is not primarily determined by what you think. This is, with I think, for a lot of uh, particularly evangelical Christians, we can think if we get all our doctrine right and all our beliefs right, then everything else is going, then it's going to be, everything else is going to be fine. Whereas actually, uh, that body of truth is designed to actually point your love in the right direction. Is to cause you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbour as yourself. It's the ordering of those two things that are vital. Now, in as much as this flattening or this distortion of the idea of happiness uh, has occurred because for a lot of people happiness is you know just um, reduced to pleasure essentially so too with with love we tend to love things that give us pleasure to love something is seen as just an elevated form of desire. Oh, I really love ice cream, or I really love that person. Why? Because often it is because they give me a sense of pleasure, or they validate me, or they make me feel good about myself, or I just enjoy being around them. And this is a, this, this is a degradation of this idea. It's just associated with my personal desire, and it denotes this idea of personal preference. It's related to me, relative to my pressure. And as I said, this can be the case even for the love of people. I love this one, but not necessarily that one. People often abandon relationships because this person doesn't now, and of course there are you know, legitimate reasons sometimes for that, but often, you know, often people just say, oh yeah, that person didn't make me happy anymore. And so the relationship is abandoned, and the assumption there is that it's that other person's job to make you happy. It's like even relationships and other people become instruments for our happiness. And we tend to love people because they do that. That's just that, that kind of instrumental view of people as a means to an end, that is actually the very opposite to what love is. And one of the problems with that is um, because, you know, we tend to like to um, 
gain some control over our, uh, our inner state, we then, if we think it's dependent on other people and other things, we tend to try and control other people and other things uh, around us. Uh, and again, that becomes the opposite of really what love is. So let me give you, um, let me move you towards a good definition of love. Okay, you, you, didn't, you probably didn't think there was so much to say about a simple thing like love, did you? Uh, but there's a lot to say about this because, as I said, this word is the most misused word, I think, uh, in our culture. Love is not love. It needs to be uh, understood what this actually is. Now, to love someone, I would suggest, is to recognize their infinite sacred value. It is associated, love is associated with, with holding something sacred. When I love a person, it means the same thing as holding that person to be absolutely sacred. We know, those of us who have children, when we look at our children and love our children, we know that we don't just love them because of how they look or what they do for us or because they don't always make us happy, let's face it. Uh, but And yet, when our experience of our children is one of a recognition of an infinite and sacred value. I remember when my first child was born, when my daughter was born, I was, I was almost, uh, a f well, I'm going I'm to say kind of, afraid in the awestruck sense of how much I loved this little creature. I was, it just blew me away. It was like my eyes were open to a, to a dimension of deep, deep and transcendent sacredness. And so we all experience that. This is something transcendent to hold something as sacred. And to do this, to hold something as, for something to be sacred means that its value is beyond being quantified. I mean, let's say I say to Amy, I'll give you $10,000 for your, yeah, that Mazda 4 drive of yours, okay? And, and that's probably a bit of a bad deal there. Okay, so you, you, you'll, you'll say, no, Matt, you're dreaming, okay? But if I say, okay, Amy, I'll give you $35,000 for Miller. Oh, that's almost offensive. I mean, really, you know, what, you know, now, look, I mean, uh, Miller would probably be more useful. I mean, sorry, your car would be probably more useful than Miller, to be honest. No, you know, love Miller, she's wonderful. Uh, but it's not about usefulness, is it? And even the very offensive ring that that statement has just shows that there's a whole other dimension of value that cannot be quantified. It's transcendent. That is what sacredness means. To hold, to hold something sacred is to acknowledge a transcendent source of value. If something is sacred, then there's a sense that it doesn't, this, what it, what, the one who we identify as sacred means that it, they or it or whatever, you know, because people use, down through history, have used the word sacred to describe persons, things. And, but there's one thing that's in common with the use of this term in its, in, in its genuine usage, even in, in Scripture and uh, the biblical word uh, for, uh, for this uh, sacred comes from a Latin word. The biblical word is holy. 
something is holy means that it's set apart. It's set apart. It, in some sense, it belongs to God, not to you. That's what it means for something to be sacred. It means that it's, you can't just use it however you want. To treat something sacred or holy as though it were, was common again and again throughout Scripture, this is one of the problems. I've been reading the book of Ezekiel lately, and one of the charges that Ezekiel brings against his people is that you have treated sacred or holy things as though they were common for ordinary everyday use. This is why, this is what's so controversial um, during the time uh, of the Jewish exile, referring to an aspect of the, of the biblical story, um, very famous uh, moment in, in Belshazzar's feast when he brings out uh, a Babylonian king, demands that all of the sacred articles from the temple that were set apart as belonging to God, he said, bring all them out and we'll use them to have our dinner on. And it's supremely offensive. For the Jewish mindset into which had been built this sense of a distinction between the common and the sacred, and the sacred must not ever be used for common purposes. If something is sacred, it means you cannot just do whatever you want with it. By definition. Why? Because it or they belong to God. Now, this is interesting because often love is associated with a kind of possessiveness. Or loving a person means that I really want that person, I want to possess that person. Often in, in its romantic usage, that's the sense that it has. But it's that, again, is the very opposite to what love is. L true love is the acknowledgement that this person belongs to God. And to love them is to respect one as absolutely sacred. To respect ourselves and others, we're told, love your neighbor as yourself. Recognize that you are absolutely sacred. You belong to God. You are absolutely sacred. And the other person is sacred. This is why, folks, we draw such, as Christians, we draw such a, a tight circle around expressions of sexuality. Because our sexuality is like the inner sanctum of our sacred selves. And if something is sacred, you can't just do whatever you want with it. This is what our culture doesn't understand about this. It's not, we're just, it's not just, we're trying to be really puritanical and, and moralistic and spoil everyone's fun. No, it's because this is, it's not because it's bad, sexuality is bad, it's because it's actually sublime. It's because it's sacred. And so it needs to be treated with sacredness. And where it's not treated with sacredness, there's a sense of desecration. To love another person, even to love our own children, to love one another, is to treat each other as sacred, whether you personally like them or not. Now notice all of this depends that sense of another person's sacredness, all this depends on a relationship to this transcendent element. There actually is no sense of sacredness if you block out a transcendent spiritual element, if you block out God, then you completely lose, everything becomes common. You completely lose any sense of the sacred. And this is why 
we love God first. Because when we love God first, it is to hold God as the ultimately sacred or the ultimately holy one. We have in parts of scripture, even angels declaring holy, holy, holy. The repetition, the threefold repetition of holy, holy, holy is a way of indicating in Hebrew that God is the ultimately holy one. And it is from a recognition of God's holiness that we are called to share as image bearers of God We are called to reflect his holiness, his sacredness. Next time you're talking to a person, next time you look at your child, remember, this child has been entrusted to me, but this child belongs to God. I belong to God. You belong to God. Next time you're having a conversation with a person, look at them and be reminded This person is sacred, absolutely sacred in the sight of God. Now remember, when something is sacred, it doesn't matter whether you like them or whatever. You You must treat them as sacred. And to love another person is to reflect to them. This is why love is so important. Because through your love, you can help people see themselves in the right way. This is why we must love others. Because to love someone is to reflect to them their infinite, sacred value. And then that naturally becomes a way of recognising that there is something beyond. It is a way of recognising God because ultimately we are valuable because God loves us. We have an inherent value, in other words. Let me illustrate this, um, and I'll, uh, I'll finish with this illustration. And I'm talking about, I've talked about the definition of love, is to hold as sacred, to hold someone as sacred. It's the affirmation of infinite sacred value. We love God first. We recognize that God is the most sacred. He is holy, holy, holy. And as we recognize that dimension, we are reminded and we see in people a reflection of that and we help them see that reflection. Let me put it this way so that you can sort of see this and and this may not be the right illustration, but I'm going to try. I always try and ground something in a picture. It's like an orbit. To love God first is to put your life in the right orbit. Now, the earth has the wonderful array of life, in fact, a glorious array of life, partly because it is in exactly the right relationship to the sun. It orbits the sun. And the sun, the light of the sun, gives the earth life. There is no life on earth if we don't have the orbit around the sun. And so it is too with our souls, So it is too with us. Like the earth, we need an orbit. We need the right orbit. And we need to have our life in orbit around the one who gives us life, and that is God. Otherwise, our lives are just flitting around chaotically, 
chasing this desire and that desire and this thing and chasing this. And there's a chaos and even an exhaustion in that. Just chasing after this and chasing after that. Now lives are flitting there and there and there. But there's a wonderful rest in the orbit because it is the magnetic pull of God's love that draws us into that orbit. We've just got to be willing to surrender ourselves, to give our lives over to God so that we can start to orbit. And there's a wonderful rest in that orbit. Whatever chaos is going on on the planet of our lives, so to speak, if I may stretch this uh, metaphor a little more, whatever chaos there is, is going on on the planet of our lives, the most important thing is that you put your life in that orbit around God. So even when you yourselves are facing away from God, you know, this is the reason we have night on our planet is because we're faced away from God. Last week, Steve used the uh, example of the cloud cover. You know, uh, when the cloud is kind of block, when the clouds block out the sun, it's a little bit like when we feel like God's not there or God's abandoned us. And no, God is always there. It's just sometimes, sometimes through whatever experiences we feel like the clouds are blocking that. In a sense, in my illustration, even when we ourselves are turning our backs on God, God is still there. And I think as, as Christians, we can be more or less, you know, more or less going well spiritually, but as long as our lives are in that orbit, it's the main thing. And to me, that means a constancy. Because as the sun is the constant center of our solar system, so too God wants to be the constant center of your lives. However you feel, you might feel it one day, not another day. But God calls you to a constancy, to continually respond to his love that draws you and center your life around him. This is so important. And you know, it's the little things. It's the choices that you make when you don't feel like it. This is why since the early church, in fact, extending right back into uh, the history of Israel, right back you know, to the law of Moses, God always built into our lives regular patterns of worship together. So that whether we feel like it or not, we would always be reminded what is the central thing in life. That's what we're here for. This is a public demonstration of what is most important in life. Whether you feel like it or not, we revisit that and we do it again and again and again. You know, we, we use the term of doing things religiously. And I know that uh, particularly for us evangelicals, the religious stuff can have negative connotations. Oh, that's all that empty, you know, en- empty ritualistic behavior. I think we could do with doing things a little bit more religiously, actually. <laughs> we could do with, sure, it can be empty. But I think, you know, people say when, when someone does something constantly and with devotion, they say, oh, he just does that religiously. I think, in, I think we need to do this more religiously. It's, it's, it's the simple things in life, whether you feel like it or not. Let me say also to those of you who are parents, you know, and I'm just going to stretch this metaphor <laughs> just one more little bit, uh, if I may. Okay, don't take this too far. But, you know, our children in their younger years are like the moons orbiting the earth. 
right? The moons orbit the earth, but the earth orbits the sun. And as long as the earth orbits the sun, so too do the moons of the earth. Now, there's only one moon, but you get what I'm saying. When we put our life into orbit, then we take our kids with us. And they will decide for themselves whether they're going to put their lives in orbit one day. They will decide that for themselves. But it's very important that our lives continue to revolve around God, not around them, not around them, not around other people, not around our job, not around our ambitions, not around our social circles. There's a chaos that's caused when our lives orbit around the wrong things. It's the thing that destroys relationships because you get two people and they're trying to orbit around each other. Oh, you are the light of my life. <laughs> You've got two people trying to orbit around each other. Two people trying to find their life-affirming joy in other people. And it's no wonder then when that fails because you can't get joy out of a relationship if you don't take joy to the relationship. We're not meant to orbit our lives around each other. We're not meant to orbit our lives around anything else except God. This is the most important point of order for your life. This will, if you, if you pick this up, even if you're here today and you're just exploring faith, let me say the most important thing that you need to do is get your life in the right orbit. That will affect everything else. Gradually, it will not straight away. As soon as light, that that orbit is restored, you will find that so much of the potential in your life will start to come alive again. The right orbit. And when we are in the right orbit, we can begin to love other people the way that we're meant to love them, not by orbiting our lives around them, not by them orbiting around us, but as we together we follow that wonderful, restful, orbital path with God as the centre. We can love him and we can love one another and that is what life is all about. I'm going to invite you to stand uh, with me and I'm going to encourage us today to rededicate ourselves to this orbit this is what we're here for. And one of the ways that we do this is celebrating the way in which we can get ourselves back into a right relationship with God in the first place, right? Because without Jesus Christ, we are spinning off into space, alienated from God. But Jesus Christ is God come to us to pay for our guilt so that we can be reconciled to God and be brought back into that orbit. And we celebrate this physically and tangibly in the elements of communion. And I want to invite you to do this, whether you are a Christian and this for you is an act of rededication or even whether you are just beginning your journey. If, you, if your desire today is to dedicate your life wholly to God, to put your life in that orbit, then I encourage you to take these elements. The cup represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. And the, the, the uh, bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken for us. This is the price that God paid to bring you in his love to bring you back to himself. So as we eat and we drink together, we respond to that and we rededicate ourselves to that orbit. Let's do this together. I want to throw this open to anyone today who is willing 
to dedicate or rededicate themselves to God. Music team's going to play quietly for a while. I encourage you. There's a couple of spots uh, um, up the front, also uh, up the back. And uh, take the elements, take them back to your seat, rededicate your life to God as you eat and you drink. Let's do this together now. And then afterwards, the music team's going to lead us.